chapter 32, verses 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Chapter 33, verses 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. This is the word of God. Morning, church. It says in uh, 2 Timothy 2, Paul exhorts Timothy in this way. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. Indeed, one of the joys of pastoral ministry is to raise up other faithful men who will be able to preach, teach, and shepherd God's people. So it is my joy today to uh, introduce John, who's one of my fellow elders, as he preaches uh, to us this morning. And indeed, over the next month or so, we'll have a chance to hear from other fellow elders of mine, as well as uh, a deacon uh, next Sunday, so next weekend. So do be in prayer for these men as they bring God's word to us over the next month. I'm grateful for them, grateful for how they handle the word faithfully, and grateful for how they are desirous to bless us all with the word of God. So let me pray for John as he prepares to bring the word to us this morning. Let's all pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks indeed that you are a faithful God who saves and equips us to serve you. And Father, we thank you for how you have provided servants for your people, servants who love you, who handle your word faithfully, who have uh, the ability to teach and shepherd us with your truth. Father, we thank you for John. Thank you for his life and ministry. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for giving him the joy of Christ. And Father, we pray that as he brings God's word to us this morning, we pray that you would humble our hearts before your word. We pray for your spirit to give us understanding, to give us sight, to see your glory, to see the beauty of Christ as he set forth in your word. And Father, we pray that you would uh, cause our hearts to come alive as we hear your voice. May you speak to us powerfully. May you use your servant, John, to faithfully declare your truth to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, John. Amen. Thanks, Eugene. So, so when I was uh, working in a cafe, um, the, the owner that was teaching me how to make poached eggs said, it's easy to make poached eggs. It's easy, but it's difficult to do it day after day. Um, so just as I was preparing this, just newfound appreciation for our staff preachers that preach here week in and week out. So if you, yeah, just have the moment, encourage them. I'm just making one poached egg today. Good morning, GBC. Um, I'm Jonathan. Um, and uh, today it's uh, my pleasure to be reading scripture with you from Genesis chapter 32 to 33. Just a bit of a recap of where we've been. The title of our series is in Genesis is Generations of Grace, right? Over the last few sermons, starting from Genesis 12, we have been tracing the history of the patriarchs, where the account focuses closely on four generations of, of characters. We've been zooming in closely on the life of Jacob and his family, and that's where we are today in this pivotal moment in Jacob's life. So if you'd like the big uh, idea, the big idea is that God works in Jacob to grow him from fearing Esau to having faith in himself. God works in Jacob to grow him from fearing Esau to having faith in himself. And the outline for the t today's passage the two foes, but there are two camps. God is with his people through trials. The second section, the face of God. God draws near to bless the unlovely. And that's the famous passage, chapter 32, verse 22 to 33, of Jacob wrestling with God. And the last, the face of Esau, God's unmerited favor shown through the unexpected. Well, our passage starts with Jacob finally leaving the clutches of Laban. 
God had promised to prosper him despite Jacob's brokenness. If you recall in Genesis chapter 3 verse, uh, Genesis 31 verse 3, God actually called him while he was at Laban's. He said to him, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. As Jacob stepped out in faith to escape with his family and possessions, we saw how God was the one that brought him out unscathed. Because of God's intervention and warning to Laban, Jacob could successfully decouple his family from his father-in-law, thus escaping 20 years of mutual exploitation and and deception. I guess today we would call that a, a toxic relationship, right? And he was finally on his way to the land of his fathers, as God commanded him. It is at this point that the angels of God graciously meet him. The last time God's angels met him, he was fleeing to Laban's in chapter 28. This meeting bookends Jacob's 20 dark years of exile. God was with him then, and God, he is still with him now, even as he's returning to the land of his fathers. God graciously confirms his presence with Jacob, just as he had promised to be with him. God's angels reveal themselves as a a multitude. Jacob exclaims that this is God's camp, a very visual, a very experiential way. God uses that to assure Jacob that he is not alone and that he enters the land with God's army moving with him. So, Jacob is on the way to the land of his fathers, and God has shown that he is with Jacob. But the glaring gap, however, is that Jacob has a very fractured relationship with his brother, his kinsman that he is called to go to. So, we are in um, verse 3 to 5 as Jacob initiates reconciliation with Esau. And it says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Esau's words that are conveyed by Rebekah, their mother, to Jacob probably clung to Jacob as he hastily left his home. The words of Esau that pleaded with Isaac, their father, saying, is he not rightly named Jacob, the heel grabber and the cheater? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And he comforted himself about Jacob by planning to kill him. This is where the situation was left. And this was probably Jacob's very last memory of Esau before he ran for his life to Haran. But in a turn of obedience, and and possibly 
fueled by the confidence of God's camp with him, Jacob initiates contact with Esau, as we have just read in verses 3 to 5. We are told that he sends messengers to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. If you look at the map, one realizes that Esau is actually, uh, and Edom is actually geographically far south, out of the way of, of Jacob's journey back to his family in Canaan. So it was not a practical necessity. It was not a decision that was dictated by geographical need to seek Esau out, but rather a spiritual necessity, a spiritual necessity, a desire to obey God as he goes to his kinsmen. We learn that the impetus, as we just read in verses 3 to 5, is for Jacob to find favor with Esau again. And we note how he addresses Esau far more respectfully than a typical sibling relationship. He addresses Esau as my Lord and refers to himself as your servant. At, at face value, what he says later seems like a bit of a show-off of, of his possessions. Jacob actually informs Esau of what he has accumulated in, in the land of Haran. And, but now Esau being, and now being Esau's servant actually, what he's actually saying is, is that everything that he has could be Esau's if he would so require of it. But me being the natural planner, Jacob methodically sends out his messengers in hopes of testing the waters with Esau probably. If his response is unfavorable, the gift can always be uh, altered to appease. And if he is easily appeased, then there's, need, there's no need to give more. As we come to verse 6 and 8, we read of this threatening response that prompts crisis planning. The response Jacob receives from his messengers, however, is incredibly frustrating. He has no idea if his intentionally crafted message was delivered in full and as intended. And on top of that, the situation seems to have escalated unnecessarily to an almost worst case scenario, an absolute disaster of uh, international relations. Verse six says, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. 400 men, is known as a standard size of militia in those days and would then imply intentions of war. So without hearing a word from Esau, Jacob couldn't get a read on Esau's thoughts. Esau was still shrouded in mystery and even worse, he is advancing with a fighting force. So understandably, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Verse seven and eight says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Here we get a glimpse of Jacob's crisis management. 
It is a last-ditch effort to minimize loss, to diversify his people and his possessions. Indeed, it is a very practical decision, but Scripture tells us at this moment the reality of two camps. The two camps that he initially exclaimed was that God's army was moving with his people. That has now changed to two camps of Jacob's own people and his own possessions. An image of God's assurance and presence with Jacob has now been manipulated by Jacob into self-preservation by Jacob's own design. Jacob has forgotten the angels of God that were sent to go with him. Dear GBC, we can probably relate to some of the fears, some of the dread that Jacob was faced with. We're probably familiar with tendencies to default to our own practical coping mechanisms. Some of us here might also feel like we can relate to being, feeling trapped like Jacob, who is stuck between two foes. He cannot go back to his father-in-law Laban, and ahead of him Esau is coming. But in the midst of these circumstantial pressures, do we exchange God's promises to us with our own creations? Do we exchange God's assurances about himself? Do we exchange that with our own invented versions of safety that are often easier to digest and easier to trust? Well, the next, the next uh, few verses is an amazing few verses of the very first record of Jacob going to God in prayer, actually. Um, And it's a wonderful prayer. Um, He's a man in in desperation, frantically reacting to circumstances, but he seems to suddenly remember to to call out to God in prayer. And and having no one else to turn to, we hear this, this prayer of his, and it's split into three sections, praise and invocation, and then a confession, and finally a petition. Let's see what he says. In verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I might do you good. Jacob first calls out to the God of his grandfather and his father. He invokes truths about God and praises him for his faithfulness. He recalls that God's faithfulness stretches far before his own life into the life of Abraham, his grandfather, and how God initiated this covenantal relationship with Abraham, not by Abraham's own merit, but God has been faithful to continue extending that, not just through Abraham, but to Isaac's life, his father, And as Jacob thinks about himself, he calls God, O Lord, in all caps, as the special name of God, Yahweh, the personal, relational God that has extended his promise to him too at Bethel. In this moment of desperate prayer, Jacob is humbled to see God clearly. In the next verses, we see of his confession. Verse 10 says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with 
Only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob acknowledges it is God who worked in steadfast love and faithfulness to prosper him. This is a huge admission for someone like him who has schemed and planned all his life. He attributes everything that he has attained and gained to the working of God. From a man on the run with only his staff, God was the one that prospered him and gave him sons and livestock. He confesses that all that God has blessed him with was undeserved. In this moment of desperate prayer, Jacob is humbled to see himself clearly. And we move on to the petition as he comes to finally bring before God um, his ask. Lastly, Jacob moves to petition God. He goes to God with his needs and asks God to deliver him from imminent danger. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Amidst this ask, he goes to a a very tender moment of a a deep acknowledgement of of his fear. The Jacob that's scheming and calculative, the Jacob that's taken advantage of others, and likewise, he's been taken advantage of. This Jacob, I imagine to be wary of people and calculative about who he reveals his cards to. Jacob, the man of the household who has been busy planning in crisis, putting up a strong front to hold things together for his family, this is, this is the Jacob that, that he, that who he was before, but now, in this moment before God, in this moment of desperate prayer, he, is, he knows that he can be safe with God. He can be completely vulnerable in admitting his fears, his fears of losing everything that he's loved and cared for to Esau, his rightfully angry brother. And that's the frustrating part, isn't it? That Esau is rightfully angry with him, and he knows it. Despite his fears, Jacob concludes his prayer by going back to God's covenantal promises to him and his forefathers. And these three words are so pivotal in the prayer. It's essentially, yes, yes, everything I've said before is true. I I am in deep fear, and, and these are all true. But you said, and that 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 transition of saying that what God says to me trumps everything that I've said before, and this is what I'll end my prayer on. But you said is so key here in understanding what truly matters. He acknowledges his brokenness, his fears, but clings to the words of God that he knows ultimately holds sway over the circumstances around him. God says, I will do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And he prays this back to God. He asks God to do what he has already promised to do. Even through trials, God is with his people and we respond how? We respond by crying out to the Lord to continue 
to roll out his promises in the world. As God has made his promise, his promises to us, how do we respond? Well, one way is to ask him to fulfill what he has said. In doing so, we agree with his word. We begin to desire what he promises us. And we are conformed and shaped by his word. Well, in that very night after this very, very profound moment with God in prayer, Jacob actually jumps right back into the practical preparations for Esau's gift. We're in verses 13 to 21. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Next slide, please. Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The sheer number of animals that we just read, that was 550, can save you from doing the math. That is a lavish gift. Far more lavish than gifts given even to great men in the ancient Near East. And he splits this gift in five droves for maximum impact. And at the end of each drove, remember what they say? The servants were instructed to say, these belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He did this, scripture tells us, for he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. He says, perhaps he will accept me. It's, it's not very confident. He's not very confident in this, what he's just uh, arranged. So this is puzzling as I was reading this. We're jumping between crisis management, deep moments of prayer, and then we're back to fiddling with, with, with plans here. What's going on? So we just covered, before this sermon, we just covered 20 years of Jacob's life in the previous you know, four chapters. That's um, 20 years in four chapters. But in today's two chapters, Moses, the writer, slows the narrative right down to give us the excruciating details of Jacob's inner life over almost about 24 hours or so. What is Moses trying to tell us? I think it's, it's to give us the rich texture of what trusting in God's promises looks like in the realities of life. 
we too are often restless, anxious, questioning whether we have maximized every lever of control in order to manipulate outcomes. We run to God in prayer and often fall back into cycles of crisis management and self-doubt. But what do God's people do in these circumstances of feeling stuck between two foes and where pressure is building? We cling to the truth that Jacob exclaimed in verse 1. This is God's camp. He is with us. Isaiah 41 verse 8 to 10 gives us God's assurance to Israel amidst their struggles. And it says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father's corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God reminds the people of Israel of his active commitment to them, of his choosing of them, of his presence with them, of his strength and might to help and uphold them. God is the one who acts. God is the one who is near. Will we trust him in times of trial? That is the first section. Two foes but two camps. God is with his people through trials. And we move on to the second section. The face of God. God draws near to bless the unlovely. We're in Genesis 32 verses 22 to 32. And we start with Jacob being alone. The same night he rose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. him. So we do not know the exact reason why Jacob takes his entire family and, and their possessions across the fort of the Jabbok and at night, which is more treacherous. But as a result, Jacob is left alone in the dark of the night, separated from his family and free of his possessions. Jacob is left with nothing to tinker with. There's nothing left to fine tune. There's nothing left to adjust. It's just him alone in the dark. And it says that a man wrestled with him till the breaking of the day. (laughs) We do not get how this wrestling started. Uh, Was it mutual agreement, let's fight, uh? or was it, I mean, maybe I imagine just the man just probably grabbed him and they started wrestling. But scripture highlights the duration extending to the break of day. If you watch mixed martial arts, uh, MMA fights, a typical MMA match lasts around 15 to 25 minutes, and that's if no one gets knocked out 
um, and that's also with breaks in between. So from the sheer duration, we learned that the wrestlers would have to come to near physical exhaustion. Verse 25 says, though, the man touches his hip. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is no ordinary man. This is that turning point of realization, right? Jacob is wrestling with a divine being, and Hosea 12 verse 3 to 4 says, it was an angel of the Lord that he strove with. And Jacob himself later exclaims, it is the face of God whom he has seen. God seeing he did not prevail against Jacob, did not, however, choose to overwhelm Jacob with strength, to beat him into submission. What does he do? Instead, he touches Jacob's hip socket with merciful restraint. If you have siblings and you've ever play wrestled before, we know how difficult merciful restraint is. We know how easy it is for pretend wrestling to lead to an accidental fist to the face and then it's suddenly not pretend fighting anymore. Merciful restraint, the point is, can only come from someone that is in complete control of the situation. So when God touches his hip socket, he gets put out of joint. How does this happen? We, we don't know. But there's a, a wonderful verse in Psalm 139, verse 11 to 14. Psalm of David that talks about how God intimately knows his people. And it says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In the dark of the night, without light for visual guidance, God knows. God knows Jacob's every sinew and bone because he made him. As he knit him together in his mother's womb, you can unknit Jacob in order to reshape him. Jacob immediately knows that he is not up against a mere mortal, and the wrestling turns into clinging. Verses 26 to 28 say, Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Friends, this is the turning point in Jacob's life. As he comes to the realization of who he has been wrestling with this whole time. In an act of mercy, God asked Jacob to let him go, for man cannot see the face of God and live. And Jacob, who has been brought to the complete end of himself, the end of his resources and scheming, the end of his physical might and strength, the end of his pride and self-reliance, what does he do? He simply stops fighting. 
and grasps on to be blessed. God asks him, what is your name? God knows his name. But in the uttering of his own name, Jacob, that means the heel grabber and the grasper, Jacob is forced to confront the striving he's had with many other people in his life. He had wrestled with Esau for his birthright. He had wrestled with his father Isaac for the blessing. He had wrestled with Laban for Rachel and the flocks too. As Jacob clings to God in desperation and probably in horror of himself too, we hear God say to him in verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God renames Jacob, Israel, and in doing so, gives him a new identity. Israel means strives with God. It is strange that God declares that Jacob has striven with God and man and prevailed when he has clearly been the one that is weakened and in desperation. I think the lesson here is that Jacob prevailed not by strength, but by declaring his dependence on the blessings of God. Friends, know that this, is God, this, this God is the God that comes to us in our darkest moments. He knows us intimately. There is no dark place that is too far or too deep for him to find us. He comes in close and slowly and purposely he wrestles away every bit of self-reliance and pride. And my prayer for you is that you would throw away all pretense, throw away all self-sufficiency, let down your guard. And come to the knowledge that he is not wrestling you to harm you, but to bless you. My prayer for you is that you would prevail by declaring your dependence on God for the blessing that only he can give. In his son, Jesus Christ, no amount of wrestling can move us closer to God. We need a savior who can look upon our unloveliness and pay the precious price for our sin so that we can be with God, to see the face of God and live. Not by our own purity, but by the holiness of Christ. As Christ bled and died on the cross, his perfect, sinless life pinned to the cross, his blood is what covers our sins and we can be made new. Friends, if you are wrestling with God today, will you let your guard down and allow him to bless and reshape you? The next image we get is a detail of the sun rising on Jacob. The past 20 years of striving symbolized by the darkness of chapter 28 comes to an end. And it's a new day. Jacob, who moved the stone over the well, once he was strong in body, but weak in faith, 
he is now weak in body and strong in faith as he walks in a visible limp because of his hip. And indeed, this weakness is something that he will carry externally for all to see for the rest of his days. Is this not a picture of what it looks like to be a Christian? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says it better than I can put it. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God brings us to the end of ourselves to see our lack so that we would turn to God. Brothers and sisters, may we rejoice all the more in our weakness, knowing that our need for Him is God's power in Christ made perfect in us. We can now do so because it's a new day and we are made to be new creation. And we move on to our third section The face of Esau, God's unmerited favor shown through the unexpected. We're in chapter 33 now, verses 1 to 11. And it says in verse 1 to 3, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This would actually make a pretty good science experiment because the control group is the same. The people, the the same characters are there. The variables or the external circumstances are still the same. Is Esau still coming with 400 men? Yes, most certainly he is. Jacob can probably see him on the horizon. But the only difference is that Jacob is now walking with a limp. He has been reshaped by God. So as we read this text, it's helpful to look at it as the proof of the change that is in Jacob after God has touched him. What is the thing that Jacob does though? He has to reorder his family. He would have to reorder them because they were probably still in two camps. Jacob's crisis management plan. And I'd like to be clear that there is absolutely nothing wrong with applying ourselves and using our heads in difficult circumstances. But we need to be careful not to shift our trust to our own efforts rather than God's. And more specifically, in Jacob's case, the danger is to plan in ways that diminish God's promises and settle for far lesser things. So we read as Esau is approaching, Jacob consolidates them into one camp. He reorders them to in order of his affections. And then what does he do? He goes on before them, all the while limping and bowing to the ground seven times. In his expression of great submission to Esau, he foregoes the birthright he had purchased 
What a marked difference from the fearful, doubtful Jacob. Jacob had seen God's face and he had been delivered. Nothing could hurt him now. And so he moves to the front of the group, no longer chiefly concerned about his welfare and acceptance. Jacob can now lead his family in humility, in repentance, and trust. Mind you, he still does not know how Esau will react. He probably had to prepare himself to give up his life for his family in that moment. But we read in verses 4 to 11, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and, and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. In, great, in, in a great turn of events, we read of how Esau running to embrace Jacob, this, this wonderful picture of falling on his neck and kissing him and, and weeping. This is, this is so strange for, at that time for, for people to read, actually, because it's exceptional that an older man in Near Eastern culture would, would run to meet their younger as it's considered undignified. But Esau's unreserved approach to meet and to, to greet and embrace indicated that he had no animosity toward Jacob. Both sides miraculously threw aside all their rights, threw aside all their privileges, came together in a sweet picture of reconciliation. What do you think Jacob was thinking as he hugged Esau in tears. This is unmerited favor. I don't deserve this. Next we read on about how the family is rightfully introduced and how there are gifts. In response to Esau's questions, Jacob introduces them as the children whom God has graciously given your servant. As we know, there is a lot of past family drama there brought about through, uh, as we think of these 11 sons. We recall the warring between Rachel and Leah, but Jacob was right. It was all God's gracious gift. He indeed graciously worked through all the family dysfunctions to fulfill his promises and bless Jacob. In these introductions, this, however, is the second time that Moses highlights Rachel and Joseph specifically. And yes, of course, they are, you know, his most, they are the most precious to him. But as he stood to the side, what do you think was going through his mind as he was introducing his wives and his children to Esau? I think as Rachel and Joseph came forward to bow, that he probably realized that at some point the night before, he was prepared to lose them, at least half of them. And all his family knew that as well because they were physically split into two camps. Now here, they are all alive and well before his eyes. We learn that God fulfills his promises best. His promise to bless Jacob with offspring, bless him with land, and for them to be a blessing 
is beyond Jacob's best planning. And what Jacob gets is a front row seat to the unfolding of God's promises. As God guides Jacob out of fear, he is also building up his faith in him. We later get a confirmation of this as well when Jacob urges Esau to accept his gift. He says in verse 10, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. In accepting Jacob's gift, Esau accepts his apology. And in this moment, Jacob clearly sees the connection between receiving unmerited favor from God the night before in the dark and receiving unmerited favor from Esau, his brother. God has shown him grace through the unlikely candidate of Esau, his worst fears, and it is God that is at work again. Dear GBC, I'd like to ask, is there any unresolved conflict that you have with an existing church member today? Is this breach in your fellowship so deep and so old that you have been, you've just given up on reconciling? Well, today's text shows us this wonderful grace that softens the heart of the offended and the offending parties. This is the same grace that God pours on us today. As we just talked about how acceptance with God is not something we can earn, we are reminded first that we have been accepted, we have been approved, and we are welcomed by God because of Christ. So brothers and sisters, having seen the face of God and lived, we are enabled to put aside our rights, put aside our privileges, and approach one another in humble reconciliation. This is by no means easy but by the same God that wrestles Jacob to the ground and builds him up to have renewed faith and confidence in him, by the same God who works in us today to help us obey him. Or we commit to trusting in God for the reconciliation that he requires of us. I pray that as we step out in obedience and faith, that we will see clearly God's pleasure for our leap of faith and how the church, the bride of Christ, is made beautiful for when Christ comes again. The story doesn't end here as Jacob declines the offer of Esau to journey to Seir. He declines because it is clearly out of God's promised land. But we also see how he does not go back to Bethel, the center of God's promise to him. And instead, what he does is he settles in Sukkoth, where he builds booths for his livestock, and maybe possibly to recoup the losses of his lavish gift to Esau, 
we see how God's grace remains upon Jacob, but we also see how this grace has not yet perfected him. We see in him this struggle of his old and new self, where obedience is partial. You know, not Edom. Edom is, is too far. It's, it's not in God's promised land. Uh, but, but Sukkoth Shechem is, is close enough. So we like to tell Kazumi, our daughter, that obedience needs to be three things, immediate, complete, and done joyfully. And anything that is not that is partial obedience, and hence, disobedience. What are the consequences of of disobedience then? Well, you'll have to join us next week as we learn of the tragic consequences of Jacob's disobedience and how that has knock-on effects on the people around him. So we see how Jacob is still growing and still learning, but not yet perfected. Today we have heard of how God promises to be with his people through trials, how God draws near to bless the unlovely, and how God shows his unmerited favor to Jacob through, through others. May we trust in him in our own trials, that he may use it to grow us in our faith. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that this very day as we open your word, you drew near to us. And Lord, we pray that as we leave here today, that we will continue to lean on Christ, to continue to rely on the finished work of Christ for whatever trials, whatever circumstances that we're in. And we remember these wonderful lyrics from George Matheson, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Amen.